Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. We're entering a new and crucial phase in a fight against coronavirus. Entsprechend unserer hotspot strategie. The deuxième vague. Para hacer frente al coronavirus, al COVID-19. We have to coordinate these measures to make life easier for Europeans. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. Well, the coronavirus never really went away, but now it's definitely back with a vengeance. Numbers are surging across Europe, and as you just heard, every day European leaders are issuing warnings and announcing new restrictions. We'll look at the state of the fight against the virus across Europe. We'll also ask whether politicians are still following the science and whether another casualty of this pandemic could be the bond of trust between Europeans and their leaders. And be sure to stay tuned to the very end of the show for an extra treat from our podcast panel. That will come after our feature interview with Estonian President Kirsti Kaljulaid, who's also a candidate to lead the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD. She talks about digital transformation, the rise of the far right and relations with the US, among other things. But first, let's focus on the coronavirus. I'm joined by our health reporter, Gillian Deutsch. Hi, Gillian. Hey, Andrew. Let's just start off with an overview if we can. I mean, obviously, things are are changing by the day. We're recording late Wednesday, so some of the The kind of numbers may change between now and when our listeners hear this, but give us a sense of it. You know, there's been talk about a second wave for, well, months. Are we there now? And, and, you know, how does the kind of overall situation, I know it varies across Europe, but the overall situation compared to when things got, you know, really bad in the spring? Yeah, I mean, whether you call it a second wave or resurgence in cases, doesn't necessarily matter. What we definitely see, though, is that things are not looking very good in Europe. We're definitely seeing a whole bunch of countries with higher case numbers than than we saw even in the spring. There are scientifically sound reasons for this. Countries are testing much more than they ever used to. We're not seeing hospitalization rates like we used to, and certainly not death numbers like we used to. But I was talking to some experts earlier today who were saying that we definitely will start to see that. What is good, though, is that we do know more about the virus than we used to, which means that we probably don't have to go back to, you know, blanket-wide lockdowns across countries. Um, I mean, I might be eating my words in a month's time, so... What is it that we kind of do know now that might help us to avoid that? Well, there's better data. 
So countries can actually figure out, okay, you know, where where are really the hotspots within the country? Are there certain areas that are actually just worse? So we could do maybe a, a very more more localized lockdown in just a, a city that's really bad, um, rather than locking down an entire country or or banning travel between two countries. We also do know there's increasing evidence that the virus is aerosol, which means that it can transmit um, in much smaller particles in the air. And this is kind of bad news in the sense that, you know, it can sit in the air much longer um, and, and that increases the chances that it can infect more people. But if we do know that, then we know that we can ventilate areas. We can choose to to be outside more more frequently, which is obviously a, more difficult as winter months come. But that does mean that we can adapt measures a bit better than we could in the spring. So let's zoom in a bit on the EU and, uh, you know, attempts to try and have some kind of uniform approach or coordinated standards across the block. What's the state of efforts to do that at the moment? You know, what has the EU been trying to do at kind of institutional level and how successful have they been? Yeah, I mean, we definitely have seen an improvement in coordination from the early days of the pandemic when we saw you know, countries implementing border restrictions against one another and closing their borders. But that doesn't necessarily say much that that's an improvement. For example, you know, the commission tried to get EU countries on board to to agree to harmonize travel restrictions. And so after weeks and weeks and weeks of negotiations between countries, essentially what they agreed to was not really what the commission had hoped for. In the end, what countries agreed to was that they would create standardized maps. And that would basically just lay out, you know, how many infection rates are per country. But in the end, every country can decide for themselves. So for example, you know, you might have a country that's designated as an orange zone, but one country can say, okay, we require those people to quarantine for two weeks when they when they arrive here. Another country can say, okay, we require two tests once they get here. Um, another country can just ban travel altogether from that country. Right. So there was an attempt to kind of standardize what the rules should be if you're moving from these kind of an orange zone is kind of somewhere in the middle, a place that's kind of where the numbers are of concern, but not kind of a red zone where, you know, often that means that you're going to face bans or restrictions on on travel. But it does sound like there were also some talk, right, of, of using tests rather than having these quarantine periods, which again are different. Different countries have different measures, right, of those. So there there was an attempt, I think, to try and standardise that. How many days should you have to self-isolate? And then is there a way in which that pe- those periods could be shortened by using tests? But there seemed to be some concern from the ECDC itself about using those tests. It was quite interesting because in talks between the countries and the commission where the ECDC was present, the commission was trying to push tests rather than than an, a mandatory quarantine period. And the ECDC was saying, look, that's not actually scientifically sound because it's hard to detect the virus when there's an incubation period at the very beginning. So that's not really enough. Mm, interesting. So obviously, as we've said uh, repeatedly on this podcast, and everyone says it feels like the only kind of permanent way out of this crisis is when there's a vaccine. And I know that's something you've been tracking very closely. So I know this is, you know, we can't answer this definitively, but what's your best sense of how far away we are from a vaccine which might, you know, lead to a way out of this crisis? Um, I do have some better news there. I mean, I know for every time I've been on this podcast, I think I've talked about how how long it takes to develop a vaccine and all the safety and efficacy trials and 
We're actually moving quite quickly, though. Um, we have more than 10 vaccines that are in phase three clinical trials, which means basically that you're testing those vaccines in really highly endemic areas on um, tens of thousands of people to really see if it's if it's actually effective. Um, and so we have quite a number of those in that stage and, and dozens others that are in phase one and phase two trials. Um, so that's quite promising. We actually could potentially see a situation where we have a vaccine approved by the European Medicines Agency early next year. The problem with that, though, is that even once we get a vaccine approved, we're then going to face major production hurdles. You know, we're not going to be able to to roll these out across the globe. Um, so that's going to be difficult. Who gets them first? And then also ensuring that those vaccines are actually given to the right people across the globe. Mm. Yeah. OK, so sometime next year, you know, we should have a vaccine, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's going to get it super quickly. OK, well, we'll uh, keep checking back in with uh, you and your colleagues from the health team as this, I was going to say progresses. I don't know if that's really <laughs> the right word, but continues. Gillian, for now, thanks very much. Thank you very much for having me. And sorry, I don't have more more happy news, but I'll, I'll report first one day, thing when I do. Yes, one day, someday, very one soon, day we'll have a special happy edition. <laughs> yeah. Now, to talk about the broader political implications of the coronavirus, let's bring in our podcast panel. Reem is in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello. And Matt's in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Guten Morgen. Okay, so we actually are talking to you at a very good time because we're recording on Thursday and just last night. Both Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron were talking about the coronavirus and talking about measures to be taken as the number of cases continues to increase. Reem, just want to give us a very brief overview of the kind of headlines from what Macron had to say. And what's the, you know, the initial reaction been? Yeah, so on Wednesday night, Macron gave uh, a very long-awaited evening television interview in which he announced that a curfew was going to be imposed in the nine biggest population urban centers, including the Paris area, but not just. And these centers are actually all across France, which is quite striking. Um, and so there's a curfew that's uh, going to start Saturday. It will be a curfew from 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. It is supposed to last four weeks and then can be extended and the government will ask for its extension until December 1st. And the idea behind it, Macron said, is that obviously in the second wave, the idea is that people have to live with the virus, but we have to continue trying to contain it and to contain it. These moments, as he, he called them, these social gathering moments have to be limited because it's when the risk is highest, when people are drinking alcohol, when people are socializing with the people they like. And so he also said that there would be a limitation to six people uh, in terms of how many people you can have over for dinner or that you can go out with to a restaurant as long as you, you've left by 9pm. Okay, and um, a slightly different approach in, in Germany, of course, you know, uh, Germany has not been hit as hard as a lot of other European countries, Matt, but the numbers are, are also going up. And it was quite interesting to see the contrast last night where Emmanuel Macron can just come out. He did this in a, in a TV interview rather than a kind of formal address to the nation this time, but it was still very much the president in charge saying, here's the plan, here are the measures. Angela Merkel, often, you know, uh, probably rightly described as the most powerful person in Europe, can't actually do that, right? She was haggling with the state premiers uh, last night. And where did they get to? Well, you, you have to wonder how powerful she really is if she can't even get a curfew. Although I don't think that she was really looking for a curfew. She was looking for somewhat stricter measures than they agreed in the end. And the problem in Germany is that all of these things 
become a negotiation between the the government and the and the federal states. At the end of the meeting, they came up with something of a compromise, which is, you know, more or less that most of the states are still going to do whatever they want to do. So you you have a kind of patchwork now where, for example, some states have imposed a lodging ban on people who live in other parts of the country where they have exceeded, you know, a certain number of, of cases per 100,000. So Berlin, for example, is considered to be a red zone. So people from Berlin cannot go to the neighboring state of Brandenburg on vacation now and uh, stay in a a bed and breakfast or something like that without... Matt, I'm very confused by this because how can people know where you're coming from? I mean, is it on your like ID? Well, I think in most cases they see your license plate, number one. But you also have to register at a hotel. If you stay in a hotel or a bed and breakfast, you have to you know, fill out a form saying where your residence is. And if you get caught, the fines can be quite high. So there's a disincentive to even try to go somewhere. And I think most people won't go to the bother of getting a test because getting a test is easy, but it's still a pain and you have to wait a few days to get the results of the test. So the long and short of it is is that fewer people are going to be going on vacation now and now is the time that a lot of schools in Berlin for example have this fall break. You know, that said, the number of cases across Germany are uh, going up quite dramatically as Merkel warned and as as I was poo-pooing last week. We're now at over 6,000. So yeah, we'll see. Don't, we'll see don't we... mess with Merkel, Matt. You should know that by now. Is this a moment of Matt eating crow? I can't believe it. <laughs> oh no 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 no! I'll, I will be. There must be, be some kind of technical right problem. Yeah, but, maybe we've uh, got an AI mat this week, and it's not quite. You know, the, they haven't quite perfected the uh, the programming yet. But I think it be, actually that conversation re- raises a really interesting point, which is about enforceability. And some of these measures they do rely a lot on trust between businesses, uh, between businesses and government, between people in the government. Here in Brussels. We don't have a full curfew yet, but we do have a situation where the bars and the cafes are meant to be closed, but restaurants are allowed to stay open. Now, that allows a lot of cafes and bars to say, actually, we're a restaurant, we serve food, we're going to serve food, and they continue to stay open, which, you know, they may just be about within their rights to do, but it sounds to me like defeats the purpose of this, which is to stop people, you know, congregating for extended periods indoors. But I do think, obviously, for a lot of these businesses that have already undergone a lot of hardship this year and had to shut down once, you know, they're going to do everything possible they can to avoid this. So I just wonder, you know, are we getting to a point where that kind of link between the governed and those governing kind of breaks down or is in danger of breaking down because people either don't trust the politicians to have dealt with this properly, given it's now the second time around and we still seem to be scrambling for ideas, or also that they're just not going to obey them because for them it's becoming existential and then, you know, they're just not going to go along with what they're being told to do. I mean, how much of a noise are you hearing, if you like, Reem, from people saying we're not going to go along with this or this is unreasonable and, you know, we don't want to do it? Well, you know, there is that cliche of of the French being kind of uh, not very good at following instructions and kind of uh, respecting basically laws. But the reality is, and this is something that I think the government is having a hard time also owning up to, 
They themselves didn't want to impose very drastic measures during the summer because they were afraid and they knew that if they did, uh, then the French would like revolt completely. So it's kind of a chicken and egg situation where the government is afraid of the of the rebellion and so they don't really impose all the measures they think they should be imposing and then the people are also just like these measures make no sense for example on wednesday night when macron announced the curfew there were many people who were saying why not what if it's this important why not start the curfew immediately on wednesday night why wait until saturday also at the beginning of the crisis we saw macron in particular constantly say that he's being guided by the science that whole language has disappeared from his kind of public pronouncements on it. He still says, you know, we're listening to what the doctors are learning. It's a learning curve. But that famed scientific council that it was set up at the beginning of the crisis and that had met multiple times with Macron at the height of the crisis no longer meets with him as often. And in fact, its last recommendation was submitted at the end of September. So at least three weeks ago before they decided to put in place this curfew. Right. And that does seem to be a trend, um, you know, we've seen in both the UK and Ireland, just to name two, you know, cases where the scientists asked for very specific measures and ultimately the government decided to go a different way. Now, in a sense, of course, that's what politicians are for, right? They weigh up different risks. They take advice from different groups. But at least the rhetoric has changed a lot from the constant we're being uh, guided by the science. And a lot of these scientists having very, very high profiles, right, becoming extremely well known. I mean, some of them still are. I mean, in Germany, I think there was a kind of, you know, almost a celebrity. Um, I don't know if he was an epidemiologist, Matt, right, with his own podcast. And as yes. we know, you don't get more celebrity than that. Christian Drosten. Yeah, right. So how is it in Germany? And, and do you think that is, first of all, that, you know, that politicians are gradually kind of moving away from this, you know, we follow the science uh, mantra as things go on? Well, I think there's definitely a push and pull here. And I do have a sense that people are getting a bit tired of some of the harsher measures, even though Germany hasn't really faced the kinds of restrictions that we've seen in, in France and Belgium. I also would say, though, that as long as the government steps into the breach and continues to you know, see to it that people get their salaries uh, one way or another and that, that businesses stay afloat, that it's easier for people to cope. And that is starting to change now, though, that I've noticed, you know, more stores and, and restaurants in particular going out of business. Um, one of my favorite places, in fact, a little French place called the Brasserie uh, this week. Well, uh, this is, this, this podcast operating. is full of surprises this week. Wow. Th this um, podcast okay. is just throwing us off yeah. completely. It's just like bombshell after bombshell. One of your favorite places is French. You know, <laughs> but I, I think, you know, the strange thing here is not just the kind of patchwork, as I said, in Germany, but across Europe. So, for example, in Berlin, they announced that all bars have to stop serving alcohol at 11 p.m. So apparently this is the first time this has happened since World War II. So that would seem to be quite dramatic. Although I don't know if you have any 
you know, greater chance of getting COVID after 11 p.m. than before 11 p.m. Right. So there are things like this that are not really, you know, clear. So that question has been raised about like, really, does COVID just sort of take a break during the day and then come back to work at night? And the, the response is no, at night you tend to drink more alcohol and so you're less inhibited. And so then right, yeah. you start touching people more and giving each other COVID. Well, speak for yourself. Right. Well, that seems speak to for be yourself, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is it. Well, again, could be a French thing. Pro- yeah. Probably not something Matt does too much. Probably but, a, f- uh, a French thing. Well, <laughs> this is it. But uh, so, in a sense, uh, that's certainly if you look across Europe, you can see that there's you know the different countries, different people behave differently. You can understand why there's a kind of difference in measures. But then there seem to be others where it's not very clear. It's not very clear in the first place why they have chosen, for example, here in Brussels to say, okay, cafes have to close, but restaurants can stay open. I happen to know in, in Scotland, it's the other way around. They said, keep the cafes open, particularly for people, you know, living on their own. It gets them out during the day. But, you know, we want to avoid uh, also the sale of alcohol in a lot of cases. So, again, I, I wonder if it just adds to this sense and this danger of, of a loss of trust, you know, in authority, that there doesn't seem to be a very clear idea where, you can look across Europe and say, well, everybody's doing pretty much the same thing and they're doing it because it's very clear logic behind it. A lot of it just feels a little bit like people are scrambling little, literally day to day or, or week to week to come up with whatever measure they think might work. I mean, for a while here in Brussels, uh, we had to wear masks anywhere outdoors, including in you know deserted streets. Now, the numbers are now worse than when that was happening, but we don't have that restriction anymore. Well, and in Sweden, they're still not wearing masks, right? Right, yeah. And here's the other thing. I think the argument of we're still discovering this virus and we're still trying to figure out day to day how to deal with it, I think was audible in March and was audible in June. It is much less audible in October. I mean, you must have right. a, a, a way to kind of deal with it in a less haphazard way. I think way. that's the real danger. Yeah, that there's there a lot less understanding for a that lot less. For, for people and now saying, hold on, you've had all you had all summer to figure this out. We know we knew this was coming back. And people are fed up. Well, that's the point is that everybody knew it was coming back, right? I mean, every pandemic has a second wave in the fall. And I don't think this should be surprising to anybody that we're facing this situation now. So that actually, let's leave it there for now. Um, Matt and Reem are going to come back later for something we're going to do at the very end of the podcast, where as we face the prospect of having to entertain ourselves more and more as we're not allowed to go out and have fun, I've asked each of them to recommend something that uh, people might want to read or watch or listen to, and I'll have one as well. But we'll do that at the end of the podcast. So Reem, Matt, thanks very much for now. Thank you. Bye. Now it's time for our feature interview with Estonian President Kirsty Kaljulaid. Our own David Herzenhorn sat down with her for a socially distanced chat when she was in Brussels last week. As you probably know, Estonia takes great pride in being a very digitally advanced society, and that idea is central to the President's pitch to be the next Secretary General of the OECD. That's the organisation that brings together 37 of the world's leading economies and is at the centre of a number of big debates right now, including on digital tax. Calulade sets out her case at the start of the interview. I see behind the the first curve of digitalization precisely because I'm an Estonian. I was there 20 years ago advising Prime Minister of Estonia when we started the digital transformation. 
And we somehow, we thought we'll be maybe two, three years ahead of the big European nations. And we thought we'll get our digital government cheaper if we go quickly. Instead of this, 20 years later, we are still the only one who has taken the first curve and see behind the bend what is to come. We are the only digitally transformed nation. So we probably know a little bit more about how societies are transforming because of the technology. That is an advantage, I believe, what we have. Something that's been been big in the news as you talk about uh, global taxation, uh, you talk about wanting to still be a part of a national social security system. Mm -hmm. But aren't we headed to some level where if there isn't global cooperation, Mm -hmm. nobody's... Mm-hmm. systems necessarily work. I mean, the- Exactly. We are losing the taxpayers because our system doesn't fit them. Never mind how you earn your income, where you earn your income globally. You must be able to have an agreement with a state that this state is your safe dock and you have all the transparent and easy means and ways to pay taxes where you choose to. We encourage people to, I mean, work EU-wide. We should support also this encouragement with services. We do. In Estonia, of course, you have e-elections and you have, I mean, you can change your driver's license and renew it online and so on. So to a certain extent, we know that it's also possible to follow your citizen with your services. But doesn't it take a little bit more of global thinking of making sure, for example, that healthcare systems really work borderless? Talk to us a little bit about one of the biggest issues that has been on in the arena of the OECD, which is the question of can there be a a a digital tax Mm -hmm. that's agreed upon by Washington as much as uh, Brussels and and the EU? Do you have thoughts on how how do you convince everyone that somehow this has to happen? I think we need to take much wider picture on how digital changes, because right now, indeed, as soon as we start talking about digital economy and what impact it has on our, uh, our taxation, everybody's thinking of taxing multinationals. I agree this needs to be resolved. The system has to be relatively simple. It has to be worth having in this sense that the proportion of uh, income which will be taxed by the countries where the service or, or goods have been offered, I mean, needs to be considerable so that, I mean, it's, it's worth the hustle. And it's really, in a way, depressing, isn't it, that with all the technology we have, when the, the lockdowns happened, we couldn't get online education working we could. very fast. For, but... but <laughs> We could have, perhaps, but it didn't happen, right, in, in many places. Many people ask that, um, tell us how the Estonia, how, how in the digital Estonia then the world changed. And the answer is actually indeed that, I mean, in online education, there was obviously a huge uh, upscaling. But, I mean, already the schools had a system, the e-school system, where students, teachers, parents regularly interacted. In our e-health system, I mean, the only change we needed to do was this that previously in e-health system it was the doctor who started your sick leave and we decided that in the emergency like a virus people are allowed to start their own sick leave so you were given authorization to access e-health system not only to check whether you are on sick leave but also to put yourself on sick leave your doctor was notified they verified checked the symptoms sure somebody free road but i mean this was less of a cost less of a risk than having all people running to the doctor because they have symptoms. What do you say to the people who say, yeah, yeah, but Estonia is so small. Sure, you can do that in Estonia, but try doing that in Russia or in China. The wonderful thing about the Internet is that it is massively easily upscalable and geography neutral. It's not smallness. It's that you don't understand the risks. But that is not true. We understand the risks, and our digital environment is much stronger regulated 
than is any GDP off, for example. So are you convinced then that a big country, whether it's uh, India or the United States, can do e-elections? You never start with e-elections. This is a high-trust, high-level service. All your people have to be rather exercised in cyber hygiene and trust the system. You don't build separate e-health or e-voting system. You build an e-ecosystem which is accessible only with digital ID. Then you train people to use this system with low-risk services like school registrations, for example, social services, because, I mean, applying for social support so that your neighbor doesn't see you in the office and queuing there. Very good thing, I mean, really incites people to come on, on board. And then you gradually move on to high-risk trick involve private sector so that they use the same digital ID because people don't communicate with government often enough to, I mean, naturalize this system in, in, their, uh, in their minds. So e-voting is the final level service and nobody should start from uh, creating, I mean, first service electronic voting. Tax board is a really good one, you know, nobody wants to see the taxman. <laughs> I'm not joking, this was our first. Right. Um, we have little time, so let's ask you about security, because as you said, you know uh, these issues well, especially being in Estonia. You had meetings also at NATO. The situation with Alexei Navalny, the continuing situation with a threat from Russia, plus now quite close by the, the upheaval in Belarus. Start wherever you like on, on all of these things. Well, on Navalny, it's very simple. People, for some reason, say that what happened to Navalny is not the same as what happened to Skripal, because that was a chemical weapon level attack on the NATO territory. And I say, no, exactly, this wasn't the same, but it's exactly the same what happened in Syria. Only there it happened to more people than in Russia. But in fact, the infringement of international law is exactly the same. In Belarus, Belarus is an interesting case because, I mean, of course, uh, let's say the other side likes to, I mean, make the situation seem like this, that, I mean, European countries are trying to enlarge their sphere of influence involving Belarus. But this is not the case. Belarusian people want the right to decide democratically for their own country's future. And this is what we stand by and this is what we support. We are not vying for influence. No way. Right. We have seen, maybe alarming for some people, knowing Estonia's openness, a, a far-right streak mm-hmm. appear in recent years. Uh, this is not alone in Germany and in other places as well. But how do you account for what's happened? What, what are people reacting um, to? We talked lengthily about how our uh, systems have failed uh, middle class and lower middle classes. Same in Estonia. I mean, in the 90s, when Estonia started economic transformation, we didn't have resources to kind of counter for the side effects, which is, I mean, depletion of population in rural areas because people were for productivity gathering into the towns. Then, to a certain extent, well, because you see uh, your GDP per capita is growing very fast, you think everybody, I mean, tide rises every ship, as the saying goes. But you have to forcefully take care that people don't feel left behind. The best way of doing it in the countries where you don't have egalitarian education system is to go for it. In Estonia, we do have it. We also have very good universal health care. But even in Estonia, this, I mean, if you take Tallinn out of Estonia and calculate GDP per capita, it's 55% of the EU average. Tallinn is 135. With this kind of decollage, for those people who have not gained from all this development, and this is now not uni- uh, only Estonia, this is universal concept, they want to look for, I mean, basically changing radically the system, hoping that the new distribution of wealth 
will be more forthcoming for them. And this gives us this trick, I'm afraid. So you see, income inequality is a driver Quite of, of this. Yeah. Uh, quickly, I should ask you before we ask about the Not the even income seals. inequality, but uh, feeling that you do not have access to the services of the government as well. I mean, because if rules are bad and, and services are far, you don't get them. I think income inequality people can tolerate as far as there is good education, good health care and good access to public service. Thank you so much. There's a U.S. election in, in November. Do you worry about four more years of Donald Trump? Interestingly, no. In NATO, for example, uh, specifically. I mean, I mean it's, it's only worth worrying about things which depend on you. I mean, it's American people who choose their president democratically. We don't dispute about that. I mean, we work with whom, whoever there is in White House. And by the way, our contacts with White House have not been bad. If you look uh, what has been going on in the region uh, of Baltics and Poland, I mean, considering defense issues, then you have nothing to complain. And finally, I'm really sorry, but I mean, European countries should be spending the 2% they agreed in 2014. And everybody has been telling this in a nicer format. And shame on us that it took somebody who is uh, not so nice format to mm. say us that we need to defend ourselves. And there is a geopolitical reason for that. Russia used to be a global risk. Now that is China. Russia is a regional risk and Europe should manage its regional risks themselves. So never mind who is the president, it's fine. Thank you very much. Okay, so thanks to David for bringing us that conversation with the Estonian president. And now, as promised, Matt and Reem are back uh, to give us a recommendation. This is something we're going to try and do at the end of the podcast every week. So, uh, Reem, let's start with you. What's your uh, recommendation? This week, really, my, my recommendation is an article by Ben Smith, who is the New York Times uh, sort of media columnist. And this week, on Monday, he had to write a piece about his own paper, the New York Times, and a scandal that has erupted. The central character of the award-winning New York Times podcast, Caliphate, is now under fire because he's been arrested in Canada, his home country, on accusations of having made up most of his uh, story related to his time in ISIS. And the issue that has come up with the reporting of this podcast is that uh, these issues on the credibility of this uh, sort of star witness or character had come up uh, way before the podcast was put together, and yet the New York Times sort of went ahead with it. But it also raised other bigger questions about the reporting of this uh, sort of reporter, Rukmini Kalamashi, and Ben Smith had to write that piece, which is never easy. It's never easy to write or investigate your own employer or your own colleagues. And I think he does a marvelous job uh, sort of wading through that minefield. So the, the, the headline of the article is, An Arrest in Canada Casts a Shadow on a New York Times Star and the Times. Right. And we'll include a link in the uh, in the notes that go along with this podcast. Matt, what's your recommendation? Yeah. So, I, you know, my choice is something uh, a little bit on the lighter side in these dark days that we're facing. I stumbled upon this show. I guess we would call it a sitcom on Netflix called Emily in Paris, <laughs> which uh, reminded me... Oh, the Reminded terror. me of another uh, <laughs> young American woman who shall remain anonymous who lives in Paris. And uh, it's just, it's a funny, it's a funny show about, you know, Americans coming to Europe and some of the challenges they face in dealing with the 
natives. Are you saying this is this is like an exercise in hyperrealism, Matt? Because that's not the sense I get yeah, from other I think, reviews. Yeah, I think it gets a, a bum rap in other reviews. It's a, <laughs> uh, it's a fun show and, you know, people shouldn't take it too seriously, especially if you're French. Okay, good. Well, there we go. Well, I have to say, yeah, uh, the French have had a completely uh, bad reaction to it. Um, they think that it's just completely wrong and full of cliches, but that's probably why. Which is all the more reason to watch it. There now, we go. Well, you know, everyone can. Got to see it. Every, this is, these are recommendations. Everyone can watch and make their own judgments on the article on Emily in Paris. And I will throw one into the mix, which is actually something that Reem and others recommended a while ago. Also has a French connection, um, but perhaps of slightly higher quality. It's Le Bureau des Légendes. It's a spy series set in a part of the French secret service that looks after undercover agents. It's been going for a few years in, in France, right? I think they've done five seasons if I'm right so the good thing is I've just got through the first season very good I think it has touches of Le Carre has touches of some of the best American drama at its height you know things even like The Wire you know it reminded me of a little bit it's very well written very well acted and the great thing is as I say it has five seasons so if we are heading back into lockdown there are a lot of episodes to keep us going through what could be a long winter so those are my tips and those are Reams and Matt's and um, that will do it for this week so Reem, Matt thanks again very much thank you thank you And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Please take a moment to click subscribe or follow wherever you listen to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you like the podcast, we'd appreciate you clicking some stars or even leaving a short review. You can also send us feedback. Maybe you have some recommendations of your own for us or for our listeners. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. Have at it, as they say in the US. And talking of the US, Ryan Heath is back on Tuesday with another episode of Campaign Confidential. And we'll be back next Thursday with another EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.